The 1v1 interview series is a production of the Boss Rush Network of Podcasts. Visit bossrush.net to listen to our podcast and read our articles, game reviews, and more. You can also follow us on Twitter at Boss Rush Network to stay up to date with our content. Thank you for listening. Hello, everyone, and welcome to 1v1 with Boss Rush Network. I'm your host, Celeste Roberts. Today, I have the pleasure of interviewing Alex Orlando, an associate editor and writer at Discover Magazine. Hello, Alex. Hey, Celeste. Thanks so much for having me here. Thank you for joining me. I had reached out to you a few months ago to see if this is something you'd be interested in doing, and you had a really big and exciting life event that was happening before we could um, connect like this. Would you like to share? Absolutely, I did indeed. Yeah, I got uh, I got married um, at the end of uh, September, September 30th. Uh, my, uh, my wife and I had a beautiful wedding uh, out here. Um, we live in Milwaukee, and we got married about uh, 30, 45 minutes west of the city. Uh, it was a barn venue, but I feel like that almost didn't do it justice because it was like its own little property, and they had like little fairy lights in the trees, and it was just it was perfect. It was it was an amazing day. Congratulations. I know that had to be a wonderful day. Definitely. It was we kind of extended the fun a little bit. We um, didn't leave for our honeymoon until the Monday after. Um, so that way we got to kind of like hang out with friends and family a little bit for uh, for a few days after the wedding. And yeah, it was just nice to have a little bit of extra time uh, with everyone before we uh, we jetted off to, to California where we spent a week. Ooh, which part of California are just different cities? Uh, no, we were in uh, the Bay Area kind of the whole time. Um, I had uh, I had lived in the Bay Area for a few years uh, when I went to grad school for journalism. Um, and uh, yeah, I, I really loved that part of the country, especially the Point Reyes seashore, which is kind of north of the Golden Gate Bridge, uh, and just really fell in love with like the scenery there and the wildlife. So we got a uh, cute little Airbnb in this kind of, you know, very small, cute little coastal town and just spent a week there with that as our home base. Oh, gosh, that sounds really relaxing. It was nice. I think we needed it after the, the wedding <laughs> stress just to be like, oh, we just get to chill now. This is nice. Oh, wow. Thank you so much for, for making time, especially with all that excitement going on. I, I mean, do you feel different? <laughs> That's you know, a common I, question, right? It is. It's, it's <laughs> funny. I've been like thinking about that whenever someone else asks me it. But um, yeah, it's, you know, it's, there's a nice comfort to be able to like refer to your partner and say like my wife. So like, I've been getting a lot of mileage out of that. And like, Ooh. You know, just having, having, you know, a wedding ring is something that like, I think I like more than I expected to like, oh yeah, it's a nice little reminder of like your, <laughs> your person. So that's been, that's been very sweet and nice. Oh, I love that. Oh my gosh. <laughs> you can make me cry. <laughs> that's really sweet. And I, oh, that's awesome. Well, Alex, so what can you tell us about yourself as a professional? Yeah, absolutely. Um, so I am a journalist and magazine editor. Uh, I'm an editor for uh, Discover Magazine. We are uh, a national uh, science publication. Uh, you know, based uh, in Waukesha, Wisconsin, uh, about half an hour west of uh, Milwaukee. And um, for Discover, I do kind of a lot for the print magazine, because uh, we have both like a, a physical print magazine and a website. Um, I would say I probably do the majority of my work for the print magazine. 
um, editing kind of features like longer magazine stories, anywhere from, you know, 1,500 to, to 3,000 word kind of longer pieces that tend to be more narrative focused. Um, and I also edit uh, shorter stories in the front of the magazine, kind of what we call the front of the book, um, which are if you pick up a magazine, there's usually like little shorter articles that take up a page. And, um, you know, a lot of magazines are structured, but I'll have this section, this front of the book at the very beginning um, for kind of little appetizer stories to kind of prepare you for, you know, reading longer pieces in, in the future well. Um, so I edit a lot for um, for the magazine, you know, reading other people's features. Uh, uh, also do that for our website. And I would say about maybe twice a year, I get the chance to um, to write longer features for the magazine uh, myself. And I'm also kind of writing uh, web stories for online on kind of a rolling basis. So lots of lots of different hats, but I love it because it lets me, you know, flex my muscles as a writer and as an editor and never never a dull moment gosh i i really respect all the work you do because it's it's kind of draining to edit other people's work sometimes um not in a bad way but especially if you're doing it multiple times like okay here's your first draft with edits first round of edits second round however however many rounds it would take sure. and the words can kind of start blending together a little bit definitely yeah, the, the words start blending together. And I feel like the biggest thing I've learned from, I really hadn't edited professionally at all before this job, but in the past few years, kind of ramping up as an editor from shorter stories to longer features is just having the confidence to kind of trust your instincts and to be like, no, that is like the right call. Like mm -hmm. this section doesn't belong there, or we need, you know, a quicker introduction. Like just trusting that, you know, you can exercise that judgment and help the writer make the piece better. That's what editing is about. It's not a, a good editor, which I'm, I'm sure you are because you're person, you know, you're smart and have a good personality. It's to encourage the writer to make them a better writer, to help their piece really sing. And I'm sure you probably have people editing your pieces too, right? A second pair of eyes. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we actually have that built into our, our process where Every story for the print magazine, you know, we will have primary editors on that story where you're the one kind of taking it through rounds one, two, and three. Um, and then when you've got it to a place where, you know, you need another set of eyes or you've kind of exhausted all that you can find with the piece, we send it to a top editor who kind of edits the edits and is that second set of eyes, like, you know, looking for things that the, the first editor might have missed or, you know, offering their feedback to you about just about the piece. And... I think that is kind of this, you know, for me at least, this magic step where like pieces really go from good to great because uh, mm -hmm. there's only so much you can catch as one person, even if you're looking at it, you know, as a as an editor or an, as an advocate for the reader, like having that second person just kind of look over your shoulder and be, oh, there's something we can make better too, um, can really, you know, exactly like you said, make it sing and, and give it that extra, you know, pump it needs. That's really important to me. And the way you're describing it is not just a process, but it sounds like you work in a very collaborative environment where people are there to not punish people for not getting it right, like right away, like, oh man, how could you not get this perfect? And more of, hey, we're all human. Mm -hmm. And of course, um, I'm going to see things that you might've missed because I'm th probably also thinking a different way. Right. Yeah. 
Totally. And, you know, usually it's a sense of, of gratitude when like I get comments back from a top editor rather than being like, oh, they're, they're nitpicking something I missed or like it's a criticism of, of my work when it's mm-hmm. more, you know, it, I am lucky to have like a very collaborative environment where, you know, together I think we see ourselves as like we are advocates for the reader as an editor. So we're working together to like make it a smoother experience for whoever's picking up the piece, you know three, four, five months down the line when it runs in print and making sure that they're having a good experience. So I think thinking about it that way helps us kind of, you know, remember that we're all on the same team. Okay. So that many months, that was my next question. How long does um, it take for a piece to go from, I guess, conception or idea, or does someone come to you and pitch the idea? How, what's the whole process like from beginning yeah. to end? No, it's a great question. There's, there's a lot of variability. Um, so sometimes we will have an idea for a piece that we want to write on staff. Um, and we'll kind of talk about that internally. Uh, we have regular pitch meetings twice a year where we come together as a staff, me and my fellow editors, and we present stories that we would either like to write personally or we'd like to assign out to other people. Um, so there's, you know, there's a good number of stories that are staff generated ideas. Um, and then the others come in just kind of through uh, various emails. Like we have um, one of my colleagues is our features editor. So feature pitches get sent to, sent to them um, and they kind of, you know, evaluate them on, is this compelling? Is this going to be engaging for the mm. average reader? Um, you know, you do a lot of vetting in that, that pitch phase because um, I'd say the biggest thing I see in terms of pitches that don't hit the mark for us is people just pitching a story that wouldn't be a fit for our publication um, and getting the feeling that like, you know, okay, this person might need to make themselves a little bit more familiar with like the types of stories we do before they pitch. Um, so we do get a lot of stories that way, um, just from people pitching to the magazine, uh, sending emails to us. That's usually like, you know, one page summary of kind of what the story is, why it matters, and then how this person would go about reporting it. Because you usually want to give the editor a sense that, okay, I can handle this. Like I have the reporting chops, I have the writing expertise to like deliver on this thing that I'm promising so that you will, you know, basically agree to assign me um, a piece and, and pay me X amount of money to, to write the story. Um, and then once we, we make the assignment, you know, we kind of settle on a rate with the writer, um, usually offer like X rate for X number of words. And, you know, there's some negotiating there sometimes. And then once we've kind of settled on a rate and a word count, um, then we officially assign the piece. And then the writer has um, usually about a month to turn it around. So that's, you know, doing all the interviews, um, doing the research required and kind of compiling it into a first draft. Um, and then once that first drafts kind of lands in one of our inboxes, I would say there's probably another month and a half that we have to kind of take that story through production, you know, from uh, a first draft to being ready to hand up to our graphic designer for laying out in the magazine. Um, and in that, like in between time, there's, there's lots of little steps. Like we, you know, we do the original round of edits that I was talking about where it's the primary editor. So for a piece that I'm editing, I would send it back maybe one to two, sometimes three times if it needs, uh, needs some work. Um, and then it goes to the top editor and they're editing the edits. Uh, and after that, it goes to uh, fact check. 
Um, so we have our writers kind of pretty thoroughly annotate every sentence in a story that is a fact and can be factually verified. Uh, and when I first started here and I saw like what was required of these drafts, it's kind of crazy because they will have like, you know, a hundred plus uh, annotations, like footnotes in the draft, all linking to like a different study or a different part of the recording because you're, you know, you're giving um, this independent fact checker all the tools they need to go through the story and be like every sentence that we're saying is factually correct. Um, and that takes about a week for the fact checker to kind of go through. Um, they're also calling all of these sources. So all the people who are quoted in the story, you know, scientists for, for Discover, they're calling up all of these experts and kind of re-interviewing them and basically saying, you know, things like, you know, you gave this impression, is that accurate? Like, you know, or the writer used this metaphor to describe your work, is that a fair comparison? Um, you know, for things where you are taking more like literary license, you still need to be able to make sure that it's, it's accurate. So that can even be fact-checked just by, you know, checking back with the experts. Um, and then after it comes back from fact-check, the editor has to kind of uh, incorporate the, the corrections that were found because sometimes it's it's more of an art than a science in the sense that a fact checker might flag something and say oh well the source said this but here's the real technical definition and it could be kind of like splitting hairs so you have to make that call as an editor like okay we're getting a little too in the weeds here like i think what's here <laughs> originally is fine um and then we send it to uh, our copy editor um, who is incredible. And she's also kind of like a secondary top editor because, you know, she's editing for uh, grammar, punctuation, uh, making sure that we're, we're following AP style, which we use. Um, and um, after that, you know, it goes back to uh, the author for their kind of last read and they go through, they see all the changes that have been made, you know, have a chance to kind of massage any language they might like and, you know, flag any things that look, look wonky to them. Um, and then it goes off to a graphic designer and they kind of create, you know, a beautiful layout with, uh, with the story. Um, as an editor, we also send them a visual plan, uh, which I really love doing and was kind of a new, new skill set for me. But, um, you know, thinking about like what the piece is going to look like in print and basically, you know, compiling images and saying, okay, I think this could run really big because this is a really like striking image of a microscope or um, a research center in Antarctica or, you know, whatever image you're finding to illustrate the story. Um, and then the graphic designer takes the, um, you know, that plan, the final copy and creates like a layout um, and then there's kind of a second stage where rather than working in a Word document, you're now working in uh, um, an Adobe program like InCopy or InDesign. You know, you're looking at what it would look like if you were holding the magazine in your hands and the story was, you know, incorporated with the visuals um, and you're writing captions and giving it, you know, some last reads. And that's when you, you know. I try and pick up the magazine or the story at that point, like I'm a reader picking up the magazine at the airport and just, what would I notice? Like, is there anything weird about the phrasing? Or, you know, if I'm a casual observer, how am I going to process this story? So that's kind of fun to do like a last read of it. Um, and then we, um, you know, we say goodbye. We um, we send it to the, the printer and it can be um, usually about a month after that. 
Um, so I would say anywhere from, uh, from four to six months to kind of go from uh, conception to, to print. That's an insane amount of work. And I hope that listeners appreciate that next time they're looking at a magazine, especially Discover. Yeah, no, it's, um, it's something like, I don't think I, I appreciate it until I saw the back end exactly. And like, you do see how much work goes into it. Um, you know, especially all these individual steps, but, um, I, I just think that's so important for like ensuring the, the accuracy of the story, ensuring that it's balanced and that we're including quotes and sources from diverse viewpoints. And like, you know, we are not only quoting, you know, white men who like make up a predominance of, of academia and science. And like, you know, you're being um, conscious of, of the reader and, and diversifying your perspective, but also you know, making sure that they're informed and making sure that the story is, you know, clear and accessible above all, because I'd say that's probably the biggest guiding principle is, you know, we want science to be something that you can pick up if you're a kid, if you're an adult, if you're, you know, nine or, or 90, you should be able to read about science in a way that doesn't make you feel like an outsider and make you feel like you don't understand so would you say that you have always had an interest in science? How did you get on this path? Yeah, um, I definitely did not. <laughs> that cracks me up when I think about it. Um, and I think like, you know, it, it, it does make me more passionate as an advocate for science because I think I, I just wasn't exposed to it the right way in school um, where, you know, a lot of science classes I took, um, you know, physics and biology, um, I think the math intimidated me as as a wordy person who feels more comfortable with books. Um, you know, I think some of the complexity of the the language um, intimidated me. And it was only really as um, you know, as an adult, my uh, my first job out of college was um, uh, doing copywriting for a um, a hospital system in Connecticut where I grew up, uh, and I was getting to interview doctors and uh, write about what they were doing. And kind of coming at it, you know, as as a writer, as an English uh, major, um, and looking at okay, what's the story here? Um, you know, do I understand the science? I know if I understand it, I can explain it to other people. You know, how can I explain um, what medical breakthrough this is and what what discovery this is? Um, and it was kind of through that job that really, like, you know, helped me, you know, uh, become passionate about science and science writing, and started to read. Uh, other other magazines after that and, you know, follow other outlets and, um, you know, and realize it's something that I, I really liked. Wow. That, that's awesome. And you don't know until you're doing something sometimes if it clicks or not. Yeah, seriously. Yeah. I haven't done scientific writing. I think maybe maybe in college I had to write some kind of paper, but it was mostly a literary analysis mm -hmm. or something something like that, but you can transfer those skills to tell these kinds of stories. And I don't think people realize that because, um, so did you, okay, so you have your bachelor's and your master's degree. Are they both in journalism? They are not. My, uh, my bachelor's is in English lit. Um, so I got a literature degree in, a, in college. Um, I actually flirted with the journalism program, but ended up kind of bouncing off of it because I think I was just more... <laughs> more like drawn to like, okay, I really want to analyze literature. Like maybe I'll get my PhD someday. Mm -hmm. uh, and that was kind of the path that I was on for a little bit was like, 
okay, I'll probably get my bachelor's and then, you know, maybe get a master's in English or go on to get my PhD and, and teach. Um, and kind of got steered away from that path by, um, by some professors um, who were, were younger when, uh, when I was in college. And I think they knew like how much the landscape was changing and just how hard it is out there as a humanities professor and like how many, you know, struggles you have to overcome just to even get a foot in the door. Um, as like an adjunct and as a full timer, um, so I, I definitely you know considered that that reality and kind of thought about it for a while. Um, I, I know at one point we had both talked about teaching English uh, overseas. So mm -hmm. while I was kind of figuring out my next move, I um, uh, was in uh, living in South Korea for a year, kind of teaching English as a second language and you know traveling a bit, but also kind of thinking about next steps. Um, and after that job, I kind of continued the medical writing I was doing in Connecticut. Um, and I ended up getting a job in Houston, Texas uh, for two years um, for this medical uh, organization called the Texas Medical Center. And it's basically this group of um, like 40 to 50 hospitals of various sizes. They have a massive cancer center. They have like various massive research centers, but they also have like Ronald McDonald's house and like okay. very smaller, you know, scale kind of um, community service type organizations. Um, but the the medical center that housed all these different uh, like hospitals and, and healthcare orgs uh, had a magazine that I wrote for. Um, and that was my first time like really, you know, taking what I had done um, doing healthcare communications and looking at it as a storyteller and looking at it as okay, I have, you know, people, uh, professors, just community members in this medical center picking up this magazine. How are they going to experience this, this news as a, as a reader? Um, so we would kind of cover um, anything and everything happening in the medical center. You know, I wrote stories on, um, on stem cell research, um, wrote stories on, uh, on cancer research. Um, we were, uh, near um, uh, NASA, obviously, in Houston. So there were a few aerospace stories that I got to write that was very cool. Um, and I think that's just when I fell in love with kind of that, you know, that process of interviewing really smart people and then trying to synthesize what they said and, you know, make it something that, that people can enjoy. Um, and after I did that for two years, you know, really realizing I wanted to keep doing that and, and learn more skills and kind of broaden my toolkit. That's what kind of led me to uh, apply to grad programs in, in journalism and then, um, you know, led me to get my master's. Awesome. Well, so is the process very strenuous? Were, were you stressed out a lot in grad school? I was, but, you know, I think, I don't know if this is true about other grad school programs, but I feel like in mine, there's just a lot of collective anxiety because you get a lot of high performing people <laughs> in the same program. So everyone's anxiety is kind of like reverberating off each other. We're like, you're talking about deadlines, you're talking about assignments. So like you almost kind of create an echo chamber for like, you know, the stress that everyone's feeling. So I think, I think we were, and I think it was real, but I think kind of like once you're, you know, working a job that may have comparable levels of stress, you know, because you're not talking about it as much. It, you know, it, it feels less, less intense once you're out of it, I think. Um, 
but yeah, definitely, you know, the, the first semester, they kind of treat it like a newsroom boot camp where um, you have uh, this class that's the foundation of the semester. Uh, it's um, four to five days a week for like three and a half hours. Um, and you're, you're learning how to write a news story. You're writing how to um, conduct an interview, how to structure it. Like it's really a crash course because um, you have people coming from such different walks of life. You know, some people coming straight from college, some people who had um, you know, worked for a bit, had various roles, journalistic and not. So there's really like this onboarding process to get everyone out on a baseline. Um, and then you kind of go into your various like concentrations, you know, what do you want to study? Um, because there was um, an audio program, uh, there was a video journalism program, uh, and there was a narrative writing program. Uh, we're kind of three of the big, the big pillars. Um, and I started by taking a bit of everything, like thinking I would sample the buffet and see see what I liked. Um, and I, you know, kind of surprised myself by being like, you know, after trying all these things, I do really still love um, narrative. I still love written storytelling uh, and kind of made my way back there and, and did my master's thesis as kind of a written, um, uh, a written narrative, narrative story. Um, and kind of focused on, on long form, long form journalism, basically for my last year, when you really got to focus on your, your specialty. Wow. So how long is your thesis? Um, it was not that long. It was, uh, 20, 2,500 words. Um, you know, okay. I think, I think it's, it, that surprised me too. I was expecting, you know, when you hear like master's thesis or graduate thesis, like you expect this big thing that you're just going to plop on the desk and it's going to be like 20 pages long. Um, <laughs> but I, what I love what they did is they, they really treated it like a professional program. They wanted to give you things that you could take out and sell and publish as a magazine story. So I was basically writing my first ever feature for my thesis um, and doing the same process, you know, the same kind of labor intensive work and, you know, whether I was doing it in grad school or for Discover, it's it's still around, you know, a month of work to to go from uh, I have an idea, I have a pitch to here's my first draft, um, you know, and you could turn it around quicker if you wanted to. But I would say, like, generally, that's, you know, kind of just how long it takes to interview people and, and pull everything together. Oh my gosh. It's, it's a process. And then it's kind of like herding cats whenever you have to interview somebody. <laughs> It totally is. <laughs> so um, when you were saying that your thesis was about um, 2,500 words, right? Mm. One of my professors um, in my English degree, he his um, dissertation is 700 pages. Wow. And this was back on a typewriter. <laughs> yes. I'm just thinking about the man hours required <laughs> to like manually plunk away at that like... <laughs> How many hours have you spent sitting? That's crazy. It, it's on um, Dylan Thomas. Mm -hmm. And I think that he actually went to Great Britain to see where Dylan Thomas lived and did live research. 700 pages. It's divided into two little books. That's amazing. <laughs> That's the kind of thing that makes me a little like relieved. Like, okay, good thing I didn't go for that PhD because then I have to write my 500 word magnum opus. <laughs> Can you imagine 
I, I so how how long and I actually do have your Discover magazine. Um, I don't. I guess it would be like your collection, your collection of work. Yeah, yeah, kind of like my author page. Yes, yes, I have that pulled up. And how long are your articles typically? Or it varies. Yeah, I think it totally varies on the on the medium. If I'm writing something for our website, those are usually anywhere from 800 to 1400 words. Um, you know, I want them to be things that are like, you know, not super bite sized, but like you could read in maybe like five or six minutes. Mm-hmm. Um, and then for the the print magazine, like I have some longer features um, on that page that uh, could be anywhere from 2500 to, um, you know, to 3000 3000 plus uh, plus words for longer pieces. So with all of this work, writing and editing, do you have very unusually long days or you have a typical like eight to five schedule? Yeah. I mean, it's pretty, it's pretty compact in that nine to five window. Like, you know, I'm, I'm lucky in that my, my company like values its employees time and mental health and doesn't totally grind us into the job to like, <laughs> you know, to produce, produce, produce. <laughs> um, so they're, you know, they're, they're very like good about, you know, you shouldn't be working outside of your nine to five hours. And, you know, honestly, apart from a few moments where I was reporting and writing something myself and, you know, you do just need to put in a little bit of extra time for finishing up an interview or, or finishing mm-hmm. up a draft, you know, for the most part, like, yeah, I'm, I'm very contentedly able to keep it kind of in that nine to nine to five window. That's awesome. So what would your advice be to someone listening who's thinking, oh, I'd really love to be a journalist? Would you say that there are some challenges to consider that maybe you didn't realize until you got into this field? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I I think the big thing I didn't realize, and you kind of get insulated from it in grad school where, you know, you're, you're talking about the craft and you're among other people who are so passionate that... Um, you know, the reality that the industry is really, really struggling is something that um, I think took me aback when I when I graduated, even after having so many discussions about it in in grad school. It, it was a very different experience to, you know, talk in an abstract way about um, the struggles of the journalism industry and then to, um, you know, get out and be working for a journalist just a few years and see like every um you know, every few weeks, there'll be a round of layoffs at kind of um, a, you know, different media publications who, um, you know, are doing are doing great work. And it's really just because, um, you know, the, the revenue model for journalism, this this ad model where, um, you know, as, as I'm sure you know, like, you know, sites and, and magazines and newspapers are um, dependent on advertisers, and that's just not as lucrative as it, as it once was. And, um, I think kind of adjusting to that reality, like helped me appreciate a lot more kind of having, you know, a, a good landing place and having a good team, um, that I can work for, but it definitely, it's definitely something to consider when thinking about just kind of the, the stability of the industry in the future. Um, and I would say the other side to that coin, which is something I didn't realize is how transferable the skills you learn as a journalist really are. Um, you know, if you're, you're interviewing people, then that's going to build up your skills at, um, you know, just engaging with, with other people and being curious and inquisitive and and challenging your perspective. Um, 
you know, if you can um, translate information into a story and make it compelling and engaging, then you can do, you know, anything in communications or, you know, kind of related fields. Like it's such a, it's such a transferable skill set. And I think, you know, that's something that really lifts me up when like, you know, it can be discouraging to see news of like, you know, more layoffs at another media company. The fact that, you know, these skills are so broadly transferable, knowing that like, even if someday it does take me away from journalism, I'll be able to, you know, apply them in any even number of, of industries and fields. Um, and I guess the other, other biggest thing I learned kind of um, doing it myself was um, just to always be an advocate for yourself, you know, whether that's, um, you know, asking for more money as a, as a freelancer, um, you know, whether that's kind of um, advocating for a writer as an editor and just kind of really, um, yeah, making sure that um, the work that you do is going to be able to, you know, sustain you and kind of um, just making sure that you're, you're protected financially in that way. That is so important. And things are getting more expensive every year, <laughs> everything. And so would you, are most journalists uh, contract employees or can they be hired on full-time with a publication? Yeah, um, it's super interesting and something, you know, I didn't really learn the nuances of until I started doing it. Um, and I would say there are probably more freelancers and freelance journalists working now who do get contracted at various publications, um, you know, that may be on a story by story basis where they're getting paid for individual stories. Um, and some freelancers even have like kind of a recurring contract where, you know, they are guaranteed to write, you know, X number of stories a month. Um, we have several writers, writers for our website who are kind of on contract uh, web writers. So they will write, you know, three to four stories for us um, a month or so. Um, and then, um, you know, there are, there are staffers, kind of people, um, people like me who are more, I would say more in editing positions than writing positions. Um, I think there's just more editing positions available. And that doesn't mean that you're not going to be also doing writing kind of like all of, we are at discover. Um, it just means that, you know, you're going to be on the staff and you are kind of managing a lot of, you know, different things internally, your, your editing pieces. Um, so there, there are those kind of, um, stable, more stable, I think, you know, staff jobs for, uh, for landing at a place and, and doing work kind of for a publication or, or, uh, newspaper or magazine. Yeah. It's, if you go on LinkedIn, it, it's amazing how many freelance contract roles pop up for writing, which some people, they want that, or they want it on the side, or they mm -hmm. prefer having that freedom full time. But in, in your position, for example, it's it's just kind of comforting having that settled feeling. It just depends on what do you want, sure. uh, what's best for your situation. But thank you for saying that about advocating for yourself. Um, that's something I struggle with because I, I kind of have imposter syndrome where, <laughs> oh, um, there are much better writers than I am or, oh, I've never done this before. How am I going to do it? But you you can always learn. And especially what you're saying about the adaptability if you have a good leader, a good mentor, a good team who sees your potential and just thinks, okay, I can, I can teach you how to adapt and 
gain the skills you need or the mindset, the framework. I think it sounds like you've been very lucky in that respect. Yeah, yeah, definitely. Um, and yeah, one thing I was I was thinking, you know, just what would you tell someone who is interested in journalism? Um, just read a lot and write a lot, and don't don't be afraid to um, to pitch your ideas to publications. You know, it's it's totally not unheard of, even if you've never been published somewhere, to have a really good story idea and email an editor, and you know. They can evaluate the strength of your writing in your pitch and kind of make a decision on, you know, whether whether they want to assign um, something. So if it's something that, you know, you want to break into and aren't sure, uh, you definitely don't need to go to grad school for it. Like it is it is a craft like any other, but it's one that you can, you know, learn um, with kind of a low barrier to entry just by putting yourself out there. You never know until you try, right? Totally. And I think, you know, there's there's a sense that like, you know, oh, like editors will laugh at me if like my, they read my pitch and it's really bad. And it's like, no, we're just going to read it and move on to the next thing. Um, so, yeah, I think just kind of pushing past that, you know, anxiety of how will my work be perceived and just kind of, um, yeah, just practicing your writing and getting it in front of other people and continuing to get better at it. And I'm, I'm sure you've had an experience with brutal editors before who, oh my gosh, it's, it's a very humbling <laughs> feeling. <laughs> yeah. yeah, humility may not be the first emotion you feel when you see all that red and you're just like, oh no. <laughs> uh, what am I doing? Why did I go into this right. field? Why? But, it, but most, most editors, a good one, I guess in my, I haven't done your kind of journalism, but just with people reviewing my work, people who have like almost a teacher's heart who see that seed that has been planted and they just want to make it even better. And they, I don't know that what, that's how I thrive. <laughs> yeah. I think you're totally on point. I mean, that's something I try and do in the edits I will leave on a piece is I try to ask a lot of questions so that way it doesn't seem like I am criticizing something. Like mm-hmm. I am genuinely wanting to know this information that is missing from the piece. So, you know, you're you're kind of gently nudging the writer to be like, well, what about this, you know, this person? Did you consider their perspective? Or what about this, like, aspect of the mm-hmm. science? Like, I don't know how that works. Um, and that way you can kind of get them to also consider it and work it into the writing without feeling like, you know, they're being chastised or like wrapped on the knuckles for for not doing it right the first time. Um, Because it really is just kind of that, like, you know, the thing I love about it is that open, like free form collaboration, you're, you're working together, you're, you know, you're co creating the piece to make it as good as it can be. And you probably had to shift a little bit because you were used to writing a few different styles, and then you come to discover and it's like, whoa, yeah, no, very much so. I, you know, I, I went from kind of doing the majority of my time was spent writing and now very much the majority of my time is spent editing. Um, but it's been, it's been very cool to learn something that's so different and realize, oh, I also find this just as rewarding as being on the writing side because I still get to think critically about narrative. I still get to think critically about story structure and, you know, even sentence level mechanics and like, you know, what makes a sentence really pop off the page. Um, so that's been, that's been a fun kind of journey realization to um, just learn more about the other side. I love that. 
I'm, I have your author page up right now, and I, <laughs> I really love the names of these stories. The titles, my favorite one is Swearing Like a Sailor May Not Be Such a Bad Thing. Because <laughs> I, I know you haven't heard me speak much, but um, I definitely do drop some some words, some choice words <laughs> mm-hmm. in my daily life. <laughs> yeah, <laughs> I'm with you there. <laughs> but you have, you have such a repertoire. And how long have you been with Discover? Uh, I've been with Discover for three years, uh, three, three years. years this October. Okay. Wow. That's, that's a good amount of time. Oh, okay. I even see the hidden science behind 2020's biggest video games. And here's a little picture of Animal Crossing New Horizons. <laughs> which, do you play that? I play that. I learned about that through my friends who play it. I, um, oh. I like, I follow it on Twitter. Uh, I've watched YouTube videos, but have not, have not dove in myself. No. I don't know if you should start. You might not be able to stop. <laughs> <laughs> but out of these stories, I, I know it's probably like picking your favorite child, right? What I'm about to ask you. <laughs> Is there one that you favor over others? And it could be for any reason, either it's the topic, the, the memories, the people you interviewed, um, mm. anything at all. Yeah. Um, I think my favorite that I've written kind of for Discover in the past few years was um a story I wrote uh, last year on near-death experiences. Um, and, you know, I think it's it's called something like the science, you know, the science of near-death experiences or, um, but um, that was one that was kind of the first story I ever pitched to discover. Um, and it was my uh, my first week on the on the job and I kind of came like very excited with like my three pitches for my, my new boss. Um, and, uh, and one of them was, uh, um, something that a friend who's a a scientist, um, had kind of cued me in on, um, one of my good college friends, uh, works now as a scientist and follows a lot of research. Um, and also kind of like very sadly has a personal connection to this issue because he recently, uh, lost his dad in the past four years. Um, so he, you know, as a very intellectual person, kind of started reading a lot about this and reading a lot about like the science of near-death experiences, which are um, a lot of the time refers to people who have um, a heart attack, you know, some kind of cardiac arrest situation and other than resuscitated. Um, and he found one researcher in particular who uh, is really trying to study this like objectively, empirically, like how can we study these experiences that people have where, um, you know, their their heart stops and then they are brought back um, because there are commonalities there. Um, so I kind of pitched that to my editor that, that first week and she was like, I really like this. I don't see a place for it now. Um, and we sat on it for like a year and a half. Um, a year and a half? Yeah, just because there were... Wow. You know, we were a bi-monthly magazine. We do six issues a year. So there's definitely a limit to the number of features that you can run. So this is one of those, we like this, but we're going to back burner it. Um, And then, you know, a year and a half later, we had a pitch meeting where I I brought it up again. And that was kind of like, well, um, we now had a new editor evaluating this piece in in my former editor's same role. and, you know, said, okay, we like the story. We're going to move forward on it. Um, and it was just such a wild experience for me kind of um, reporting that story and researching it. Um, you know, I, I come in kind of, um, 
you know, from a, a not religious background. So I kind of, you know, was very, very curious about um, just looking at what these experiences are and what kind of scientists have been able to figure out. Um, and I think the wildest thing is learning that there have been people who have been studying this for, um, you know, 50 years, 40 years, um, and have still not necessarily learned like, you know, what is going on in the brain with people who have these very distinct recollections, things like, um, you know, following a bright light, um, you know, things like um, having kind of like these um, almost panoramic experiences where you go through all of your memories and like, you know, it's kind of like that your life flashes before your eyes um, is a real, you know, physiological phenomenon that these people, people experience. Um, so there are all these commonalities in these people who have been, um, you know, had a cardiac arrest and brought back, um, and just kind of learning how different the perspectives of the scientists are. Um, some of the scientists who are like, you know, these experiences are real. They, you know, suggest that there is some kind of consciousness after we die. We just can't measure it yet. Um, and then there are other scientists who are very hard and fast and think that like, this is all neurobiology, you know, this is all because humans have brains and these are things happening in our brains and we can explain X, Y, and Z, um, you know, for these scientific reasons. Um, and I think what really was, you know, blew my mind as a reporter was, you know, taking some of these explanations back to the scientists and having them go, actually, that explanation doesn't hold up. Um, you know, one of, one of the examples being um, that people have these experiences because, um, you know, there's not enough blood flowing to the brain. Um, and it's kind of like a hallucination thing. Um, but they have done studies and some of these people who, um, you know, uh, have a cardiac arrest and are brought back, their brains are actually more oxygenated in that window because more blood is pumping to that part of the body. So that, you know, that hypothesis, you know, that theory doesn't really work. So they're still trying to figure out what accounts for these like really vivid, powerful experiences that, that change people's lives. You know, people have an NDE and then they divorce their wife for 40 years. They change careers. Like oh it's, gosh. you know, it's a profound mystical experience is the way that the scientific literature itself describes it. Um, because it can change your whole your whole worldview, um, so I, I think that's my favorite. Just because it was such a roller coaster to report it, where everything I learned kind of was you know upending what I had learned previously. So trying to write that story and kind of manage all those tensions competing against each other uh, made it made it really fun as a writer to kind of amp up that tension and you know show how different the perspectives are. I love, I don't know if love is the right word, but it's interesting that the first editor said there's no place for this. So I guess a, a pitch has to, you have to be lucky, right? Like you have yes. to have someone who agrees with that story, agrees with that idea. Yeah, absolutely. It's it's kind of a timing thing. You know, we we um, have had say no to pitches just because like it's purely space economy and it's like, we don't have an issue this can fit in. Um, you know, sometimes we'll get a pitch that's just in the perfect time to run in a particular issue because uh, our issues are kind of loosely themed. Um, so we've had issues in recent months, one that was dedicated to artificial intelligence, um, 
one that was dedicated to kind of the future of transit. So self-driving cars and electric vehicles mm-hmm. and things like that. Um, so sometimes you'll get a pitch that's just a perfect fit for that issue theme. And, you know, that's really nice because you can slot it in. But other times, like, yeah, you know, great pitches, you know, that could be a great story for Discover, for example. You know, you might have to say no to just because the timing's off. Mm. And so does each year have or each month have a theme that you have to stick to? Yeah, they're not recurring. Like we will kind of loosely create an issue theme based on stories for a lot of issues. Um, So we got a bunch of stories recently that like all were kind of pointing at the same idea of what's happening on like the underbelly of science. So one story, for example, is on um, uh, skeletons that get donated to universities and how they are kind of recruit, you know, acquired and like learning that like, you know, it may not always be the most above book ways that like some of these universities like acquire the skeletons that they use in their classroom. So (laughs) we have a story coming and that I'm so excited to read just based on that premise. Um, But that fits into this loose theme of the underbelly of science. So we kind of bundled it together. Um, And we do have two issues that are, um, or three, excuse me, that are recurring, same theme, same month every year. Um, In January, we have a big um, state of science issue where we kind of talk about the, um, yeah, we just got, I don't have it with me or I'd show you our our new uh, new issue, but um, it's basically the top, um, science stories of 2022. Um, so we had a story about the James Webb uh, Space Telescope and all of the incredible images that that NASA is getting from that. Um, you know, we had a story about um, them finding uh, the ship, the Endurance, that Ernest Shackleton, you know, one of the first explorers, um, crashed uh, off the coast of Antarctica. So kind of just looking at all of these disciplines and, and looking at, you know, what are the biggest science stories of the year um, and then rounding them all up and they're kind of little bite-sized stories. So that's a very fun puzzle of an issue to put together. Um, and then we also have one that's um, climate themed every May uh, and one that is um, themed around uh, medicine and health and kind of medical breakthroughs that comes out um, in, uh, in July and August. And oh. And apart from that, you know, we kind of curate these loose themes as stories come in. If someone looks at your author page, just the variety of topics is fascinating. So I can, I hope people are are still keeping Discover close to their hearts because that's, these are fascinating. There's so much work that goes into this. And um, do you... I uh, say, do you remember? It's still around, but have you um, read Reader's Digest? Do you remember reading it growing up or anything? Yeah, I, I do remember reading it growing up. And like, you know, when I go to my in-laws now, like they're, they're a Reader's Digest family. So I'll flip through it there. Um, but yeah, I grew up, grew up with Reader's Digest for sure. Um, I also read a lot of gaming magazines, which I'm realizing probably like also helped foster that, like, you know, that love of narrative. Cause I was like, a, you know, a hungry reader of Game Informer back when, you know, I was in, in high school and in middle school and would, would always look forward to that next issue. Oh, it was so much fun. So much fun. And Nintendo Power, RIP. Mm-hmm. <laughs> oh, <gosh. laughs> um, with 
with Reader's Digest, they had mm-hmm. a contributing writer named Mary Roach. Have you heard of her? I have, yeah. I, okay. I really like her um, her stuff. Um, I, uh, I read a book uh, by hers. Uh, I'm blanking on the title right now, but it's about um, kind of like endangered animals and like situations where wildlife and people Fuzz. collide. Fuzz, yes, thank you. I have that one because okay, I have all her books. <laughs> That's, That's yes. amazing. <laughs> Because she went from Reader's Digest, and I remember reading in Reader's Digest her goodbye article, how she was going to pursue being a popular science author. Mm-hmm. And so like this book you're talking about with the endangered animals, Fuzz, she's covered other topics too. So it's, she's kind of taken what you're doing, but putting it into very long, long, long form with mm-hmm. these books. She's covered, um, when you're talking about the skeletons and the unethical ways universities might acquire them, she has that book... Um, Oh my gosh. Now I am blinking. Stiff. Stiff. <laughs> yes, yes. About the cadavers. And she's so funny. She's she's so engaging. That is an art <laughs> right mm-hmm. Have you read her other books as well? Any I have other not. Ones? No, I've I've just read um, you know, uh most of Fuzz and, and some of her pieces online. Um, but she's someone who like I know just has that that narrative like on lock and is really strong at that. That's awesome. If you if you have time, I know I know it's hard, especially <laughs> with you know to sit down and dedicate mm-hmm. that time to um, reading a book or listening to it. But she has some really other good books. Um, Packing for Mars about space exploration, which mm-hmm. you might like since you worked at NASA. And then she has Grunt was fascinating. The um, military science. Oh, cool. And um, what soldiers have experienced. I learned a lot from that. It was really funny because she was interviewing someone who was talking about being in the trenches and if you if you have to go to the bathroom if if it hits you mm-hmm. and it's an emergency but there are other people shooting at you or someone could potentially see you from the enemy's side a lot of people just just go right there yeah <laughs> which bloom I, I guess it makes sense i just i hadn't even thought about that she gets into <laughs> these details right. that you don't really think about for those people's reality right and like, that's so human. That's like, you know, such a, yeah, just an entry point into like exactly what it is like to be in that situation that like, you know, many of us have not been in. No. And I, I don't know if you have any favorite authors or, or journalists that you really admire, but if you do, I'd love to hear about them. Yeah, definitely. Um, I, someone whose work I've really admired in the past few years um, is uh, Ed Young who's an Atlantic um, writer and, uh, and journalist. Um, he um, uh, did a lot of work during the pandemic, kind of did the series of articles for the Atlantic on, you know, where are we at this stage of the pandemic? Um, you know, giving, I think, kind of a much needed evaluation of not just the health and science, but also the policy and like really analyzing like, you know, how, um, a lot of the, you know, the reality that we were facing with the pandemic and with the spread, like, were things that started as a result of policy and as a result of politics and, like, you know, did a, a really wonderful job at, like, taking these things that are so thorny and complicated and, and making them just human and, and accessible and, like, you know, kind of doing these mile-high views that really... Um, you know, I think gave me a sense of peace and, and comfort during the pandemic when it felt like things were were kind of going crazy with with various institutions. But 
um, you know, being able to read reporting that was so grounding, I think was really valuable. Um, and I also just love um, uh, Ed's approach to, to, to narrative, to creating a scene. Um, he uh, wrote a book called uh, I Contain Multitudes, um, which is all about fungi. Um, and is one of those subjects where I think as an outsider would be like, I do not want to read a whole book about fungi. How could that hold my attention? <laughs> And it's one of those things where you get into it and because he's following the people, he's following the researcher, you know, he is, you know, even following these creatures and trying to find what's the narrative thread here. It makes it really compelling uh, and beautiful. So, so he's someone who I really, really admire for sure. That title alone, I contain multitudes. That's <laughs> so poetic and badass. I know. Doesn't that totally like just make your, your former English nerd self like happy? <laughs> I, I love titles of books. I mean, mm-hmm. I don't judge, you know, I don't judge a book by its cover, but a title, a good title, man. Can say so much. Even if I haven't, like there are books I haven't read, but I just think about the titles, like Their Eyes Are Watching God. That's mm-hmm. a captivating title. Yeah. Oh, you must feel like you have a sense of what the book is like, the tone, what it's about. Mm-hmm. Like, yeah, it's it's exactly, it's like a first, you know, a first look at someone. This this book I, I haven't read it yet. It's I'm on the waiting list at our local library because um, mm. I do buy books. I'm looking at my bookshelf. I had to buy a second bookshelf, and I'm running out of room. And I really yeah. want to support our library. <laughs> and some books they don't have, and that's not their fault. They're looking into trying to get them. But I really want to read Jeanette McCurdy's autobiography. Mm. Have you heard of it? Tell me a bit more. I feel like I I have a vague memory of hearing people talking about it. Um, okay, so she was on the show iCarly. She yes. was Sam the Blonde. Mm-hmm. Um, she wrote an autobiography called I'm Glad My Mom Died. And it's, I mean, just that title alone. Yeah. It's like, I got to read this. What What's going on? And it's a picture of her smiling and she's holding an urn. Mm-hmm. And I think there's like confetti coming out of it. So yeah, that I really want to read it. Apparently her mom was very verbally abusive, maybe sure. physically abusive. So just again, the title. <laughs> I know. No, it's it's a great title, and like I um I think I read an excerpt for that um, that someone like shared on Twitter. Um, oh. Just kind of like here's a bit of of text, and it was like yeah, as you would expect, like very like gripping and compelling, and you know the right amount of harrowing for such a, a serious subject. But yeah, it was I I liked the blurb I get. So if you do end up reading it, you'll have to let me know how it is. Is there um a book? Well, you said Ed Young with the. The, I contain multitudes. Is that a book that you just you couldn't put down? It was that compelling. Yeah, it was. It was one I really, I really loved reading. You know, I think it feels bad to admit this as a, a magazine journalist, but there are there are times when, like, you know, I'm not always as psyched to read like a book of nonfiction as I am to read like, you know, just a fiction work as like a way to unwind. But mm-hmm. um, there's something so fun and rewarding when you pick up a nonfiction book that doesn't feel like work. You know, it doesn't feel like you're, you know, forcing yourself to, to follow along with the narrative. It's just totally carrying you. And, you know, you're not realizing that you're, you're learning all of these new things because you're just so caught up in, um, you know, in the journey that that writer is taking you on. That's art for sure. Yeah. Right there. And speaking of stories, so I don't know if I mentioned yet, I don't think I did, how we met. You had messaged me on Twitter because you listened to another Zelda podcast, which I'm a part of, and you were asking if you could pitch a story idea, actually. Absolutely. (laughs) 
I, and do you want to tell people about it a little bit? Yeah, yeah, I would love to. Um, and that was that was so fun for me, like as someone who, you know, has written a lot professionally and like I am, um, you know, very, very big gamer. Like it's something that, you know, is probably one of my my core hobbies just in terms of what I'm interested in. And I'm, you know, listening to podcasts and reading articles and, you know, like you kind of just, um, you know, really enjoying all that's out there right now. Um, so this was so fun to get to um, pitch a story on two of my favorite games um, in kind of the past five years, which are um, Breath of the Wild, um, uh, most recent Zelda, and uh, Elden Ring, uh, mm-hmm. which came out this past uh, past year. Um, and I, I got the idea when I, it was in the opening moments of, of Elden Ring, and I, I think I used it in my blog article, but um, the the beginning of the game is like, almost like a shot for shot, it feels that way, kind of, um, you know, remake um, analog to the beginning of Zelda, where like, you you run through this big stone door, you lift it open, you know, after crawling out of a tomb, and the world is just kind of open before you. Um, and, and I kind of talked about, you know, a lot of the similarities and how those two games functions um, as kind of these big open world sandboxes where um, you know, the player's experience is given just as much kind of narrative weight as the cutscenes that you're given. Um, and both games kind of give you a sense of agency and, you know, freedom of like, you are the one driving this story, you know, just as much as the creators. And that was something that, you know, I think you can find in other games, but those two ones just really, really struck a chord. So it was, uh, tons of fun to be able to to think about it and write about it for uh, for AZP. I can tell you had a blast. With it. <laughs> I love that. I haven't played Elden Ring yet. I played Breath of the Wild, but I haven't played Elden Ring. Yeah, I mean, it's one of those games where like it does it does live up to the From Software hype um, about like being very um, very difficult. But I think I think this one's definitely their most accessible game. Um, they built a lot of systems and mechanics into it to kind of um, ease the difficulty. Like you can continue leveling up and getting more powerful before taking on a boss. So like if you are hitting a roadblock, um, you know, kind of in a similar way to, to Breath of the Wild, or if you're ever bumping up against one of the, the divine beasts or a really hard boss out in the overworld, you could just go and get stronger and get more heart pieces and then come back and try again. Uh, yeah, I feel like there's a lot of those kind of mechanics into Elden Ring. So if you were to take the dive with, you know, the Dark Souls kind of from software uh, type of game, that'd be that'd be a good one to start with. I need more time in the day, Alex. <laughs> <laughs> I need so much time. <laughs> I was talking with a coworker last night. My backlog is so real of all the games <laughs> I want to play. So what? Okay, so what are you playing now? If are you playing anything right now? I am playing something right now. Yeah, I'm playing. I'm playing a few things. Um, I am halfway through uh, God of War Ragnarok right now. Okay. Uh, which I'm really, really loving. Like, you know, we've been talking about narrative and storytelling this whole time. It's and good. It's good. It's, it's so good. <laughs> I am. It's one of those games that makes you kind of sit back and go, like, holy shit! You can you can tell this kind of story in a video game. Um, mm. just because it's very, it's very cinematic, you know, it's very, very, um, high budget, but there's also like, almost like this auteur lens to it where, you know, you are like following the camera so closely. It's, you know, you're 
you're watching a movie as you're playing it, and I always love those kinds of cinematic games. So I'm I'm very uh, into that when I get a chance to play it for sure. That's awesome. And I think I know the answer to this one. What game are you looking forward to in 2023? Yeah, I mean, <laughs> it's, it's got to be Tears of the Kingdom. Um, <laughs> and I feel like, you know, it's been such an emotional journey to be a Zelda fan um, between Breath of the Wild and Tears of the Kingdom, just because so much time has passed. It feels like we're in a totally different world now. And I am still ready to like, get back to to Hyrule and like um I'm so excited to see how they recontextualize the map because mm. I know it's going to be the same basic map but now there are these floating pillars so like how does that mess with the geography and like what is the experience going to be like of moving through and you know these little breadcrumbs we've gotten for the story um as um Ocarina of Time fanboy you know at heart like I'm so excited to see like they're teasing Ganondorf. They're teasing like, you know, little lore and continuity threads between like Ocarina and Twilight Princess and and these newer games that almost kind of wiped the slate clean, but also didn't at the same time. So yeah, it's gonna it's gonna be a good day when uh when that releases. I'm gonna uh gonna have to tell uh tell Rachel, my wife, like uh next, next <laughs> days are gonna be a little busy. I'm gonna be invested here. <laughs> I think I want to treat it the same way I treated Breath of the Wild. So that was in 2017. Mm-hmm. And I wasn't I wasn't really on... I had made a Twitter account, but I wasn't really using it. I started using it again more in 2019, 2020 when I joined AZP and um, then Boss Rush. And I just... I Sure, I had Facebook and Instagram, but I remember just taking my time with it mm-hmm. and not being overloaded with people's opinions about it. I don't know. Is it this purity to it, mm-hmm. that experience. I'm hoping for that again with Tears of the Kingdom. So I might be in my A for a little yeah, while. Yeah, <laughs> I like it. See, that's that's where I feel like I want to be at, where like, you know, I don't I don't read any any like things online or watch any reviews and like go in totally blind and have like, you know, the pure unfiltered experience. But then there's the part of me that just like, you know, really likes game reviews and criticism and like just can't help myself from like reading what people are saying so i might i might dip a few toes in before it comes out but then i do also like to kind of go dark for a little bit to like experience it myself before you know then you kind of check back in and say oh what is the critical community saying what are my podcasts and like you know writers who i follow you know saying and thinking and that's always fun to like you know you almost get to re-experience it through other people's eyes in that way so you said re-experience. So do, do you prefer to listen to things like that and seek out uh, critiques after you've played a game? Or do you prefer to do that prior to a game or even while you're playing a game? Yeah. I mean, I, I kind of mix it up. Like for, for okay. something like Zelda, I would probably want to do it after just because I think like you, like, you know, I, I want that experience where it's just me in the game before like I, I tune in to what everyone else is saying. Um but then there are other games, like, um, for instance, right now I'm playing uh, Final Fantasy VII on the Switch for the first time, the, uh, the original. Um, and as kind of someone who grew up with the N64 and Mario and Zelda, like, I was never really into PlayStation or the, the Final Fantasy games. So it's been really fun to experience that, like, in 2022 as an adult for the first time. Um, but while I'm playing it, I'm also kind of, 
um, you know, reading articles on it. Uh, Polygon uh, did this amazing uh, kind of long form article on, uh, they call it an oral history of Final Fantasy VII. Um, and they went back and they interviewed a lot of these, you know, kind of famously tight lift uh, Japanese developers um, who don't, you know, often speak with the media uh, and gave them a lot of access onto like the creative process and what it was like developing, what it was like hearing the reception. There's like an epilogue on like how they feel about the game since. Um, and that's been fun to like kind of slowly uh, read as I'm playing and like some of my podcasts I listen to. Um, one I really like in addition to um, AZP is called uh, Wizard and the Bruiser. Um, and they, um, they're kind of a, um, uh, they do a deep dive into like different aspects of nerd culture. So each episode will have like a different, um, will be about a different topic. So they did an episode on um, God of War recently for the new game coming out. Um, they, they did like a three-parter on Zelda, you know, back in 2018 when they first started. Um, wow. But they also would do an episode on Green Day because that has kind of like, it like hurts my heart as, as a millennial, but like now that's kind of become almost nostalgic and like a part of nerd oh. culture. So like. <laughs> Blink-182 is on tour. <laughs> I know. Oh, God. It, all, it all cycles back to us. I know. I think Paramore is on tour as well. Mm -hmm. Gosh, that's a little bit more recent than those two, but still just, I, I, I follow some of those like millennial accounts. Um, I'm 33 mm -hmm. and I follow I some too. of those. <laughs> oh, 89 baby. Yep. 89 baby. March. Oh, I'm January. Nice. Close. So yeah, I'm, you know, I, I gained so much wisdom in those two months before I showed <laughs> up. I, I followed those, um, like some of these millennial Instagram pages and I'm like, yeah, we really did that to our hair. And yeah, we really <laughs> thought that was a, a look, <laughs> but mm -hmm. I had, sometimes I, I don't like to make fun too much. Like, yeah, a lighthearted fun, but I do remember just how much fun I had. Like I was yes. really into the Twilight books when I was in high school because mm -hmm. I think the first one came out in like 2005, 2006. And then just when that last one came out, going to a midnight book release and mm -hmm. people are dressing up like the characters, just having something to look forward to something. Yes. I don't know. Like, I don't life is what you make it and the mat you make the magic of your life but it's really easy to get bogged down and all these just I don't know. oh now i have to think about renewing my car insurance now <laughs> mm -hmm. i have to think about uh deductibles and i don't know what are some things you looked forward to like any kind of midnight book um releases yeah, or games no, i love that question i um <laughs> I, I totally did the uh, the midnight releases um, for the last three Harry Potter books. Um, that was that was always super fun, like going with a bunch of my friends and we wait in line and you know you get back at like twelve thirty and you read the first three chapters and and that was always very fun. Um, I um, I don't even know if they were doing midnight releases then, but like when uh, you know when we were in elementary school, middle school, when the Lord of the Rings movies came out, uh, those were big event movies for like me and like my friends, like we'd see them like, you know, opening day in theaters. Um, those were something that like, I get very hyped about leading up to it. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, even, even big games, like I, um, 
you know, I, I remember sitting in the theaters. This is like, weirdly, this became like one of those core memories that you remember so vividly. But I was seeing uh, Bedazzled, the movie with Brendan Fraser and Elizabeth oh, Hurley. And wow. Like, yeah, I know. I feel like it's a deep cut, but like. That is a deep cut. I've never <laughs> seen it. Yeah. Um, <laughs> And it's like, it's about, um, you know, a guy who sells his soul to the devil, gets three wishes, and they all like, turn out to kind of, you know, work against him in various ways. But that wasn't the part that lodges its way into my brain. It was um, seeing a cinematic trailer for Majora's Mask on the big screen. Um, And I feel like I've looked for this on YouTube, and I almost want to like, have you like put your feelers out to the AZP community and like see we can track this I have an down. assignment. I have an yep. assignment. <laughs> like I, I can't find it on YouTube, but like I remember seeing this like cinematic trailer with uh, the moon like slowly approaching Hyrule and like, um, you know, seeing it overhead. And it was, I remember it being, having similar graphics to the uh, Ocarina of Time trailer that came out that was like very, um, like very cinematic, but it was just wild seeing that in theaters. And I was so ready for that game when it came out. Uh, do you like Do you like Majora's Mask? I love Majora's Mask, yeah. Thank you. Thank you. That's the only right answer. <laughs> I, just, I, I love it. <laughs> yeah. It might be like, it's kind of my dark horse favorite Zelda. Like if someone asks you, what is your favorite game of all time? It's got to be Ocarina because that's just too, too near and dear to my heart. But if I had to pick, like, if someone was like, yeah, what about the other games? It'd probably be Majora's because I just love the symbolism. I love the storytelling. I love how weird it gets. It gets, like, so unapologetically weird with all of its various subplots in a way that, like, you know, maybe Link's Awakening with some of the weird stuff you do in that game. But Majora's Mask, just I love how kooky and sincere and emotional yeah, it's 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 a gem for sure, even among the Zeldas. I I love doing this. Like the, when you're talking about symbolism, I love. Uh, did you ever do this? Like you'd wear a mask as Young Link and go back to the Happy Mask salesman and wear it while talking to him, and he'd tell you what it represents. I never did that. that <gasps> you, is amazing. Now you got to go back. You got to yep. go back and play. So and now that it's out on the Switch <laughs> on the virtual console, like, I've been wanting to replay because I replayed Ocarina. Um, uh, either last year or the year before. So I, I think I will be, you know, going back to Termina at some point in uh, 2023. I got a feeling that's going to be up there on my my games. Oh, gosh. you, I, I don't remember each one, but as you get the mask, I don't, not like the giant's mask, because you can only use that when you're battling that creature in Ikana Canyon, Ikana Castle, mm-hmm. I believe. Yeah, because you have to turn it on. I can't remember the name of the, the monster. It's like this... It's a worm, sandworm Yeah, I can picture, picture it in my brain. Yeah. But if you go talk to the happy mask salesman on whatever day, he'll say, I don't know, if you wear the couple's mask, like, oh, this represents the love a couple feels or, or something like that. Just very sincere, very heartwarming mm-hmm. moments. And like even some of the more grotesque masks, he'll say something that makes you think, oh, that's really sweet. The one I like is, uh, is it Camaro? Is the uh, dancer? Oh the one... yes, yes. I don't remember the name, but I know Camaro might be right. I I'm so sorry if I got it wrong, but he te- you teach the Rosa sisters his dance with his mask. But if you mm-hmm. show the mask 
while you're wearing it to the happy mask salesman, he says something like this mask represents the pride and joy a teacher feels with a good student. I love and that. that was just so, so sweet. Yeah. <laughs> Cause you, you think back to, you know, teachers and professors who mm -hmm. made an impact on you and I don't know, just really touched me. <laughs> yeah. That's awesome. I love that. And I feel like it also works on another level where it's kind of like the developers being meta about like, we made a very symbolic game. Like, you know, you can interpret this metaphorically, like, you know, oh, yeah. and all the cool readings people have done about like Majora's Mask and grief, like AZP did that incredible episode that like really kind of fleshed out, you know, different, different wit like lenses to look at that game. So I like that they even, you know, maybe thumb their nose at that a little bit with the happy mask salesman. If you have not played it and you're listening, don't let the three-day time period thing upset you. It's, to be honest, I know people make that out as like the biggest element of the game. To be honest, to mm -hmm. me, it's secondary. Yeah. I don't, yeah, sure. Okay, now it's an inconvenience. I have to go reset and start again, whatever. But just the, the richness of the development of the side characters and the, mm -hmm. the side quest. If you like side quests, this is your game. And I'm yeah. a bit, are you a side quest person? I totally am a side quest person. I am taking uh, longer to play God of War than I thought because every time a new side quest pops up in my queue, I'm going to play it because I think that's where some of the best stories get tucked away in games when like developers, you know, they almost try more constrained because it's like, oh, I just have this little bitty bite-sized story. Let me make it really, you know, it's kind of like the difference between like a short story and a novel. You know, a side mm -hmm. quest can be like something that's just this really great little nugget of a of a story or a narrative. That's a beautiful analogy, a short story or a novel, because there are so many great short stories out there that I, I think about often. Mm -hmm. <laughs> and I probably remember a little bit better because they're short. Right. <laughs> but um, Alex, is do you have any future plans either with, um, you know, maybe personal life that you'd like to share or your your profession with um, hobbies you want to pick up anything that you'd like to talk about yeah absolutely I mean I um you know professionally I I think there might be a time in the future where I try kind of seeing um what it is like as a freelancer um and trying to kind of um you know pitch stories to different publications and you know kind of build build a career as, you know, an independent professional, like, you know, can make my own schedule kind of thing, but also I can can pick the kind of stories I want to work on. And um, that just seems really, you know, nice and rewarding and like, a, um, you know, a fun way to keep doing what I'm doing, but also, uh, you know, challenge myself in new ways. So I wouldn't say that's immediate future, but it's it's an exciting thing to think about and know that, you know, if and when I am ready to, to move on from, from discover and editing there, you know, there is kind of a path back to, back to writing and back to, you know, long form and narrative journalism as a, as a writer. Um, and then, yeah, I mean, I, I definitely want to uh, carve out time to, to keep gaming in, uh, in 2023. And I think, you know, hopefully just continuing to enjoy kind of the, the, the gaming community um, you know, I feel like it's something I've really um, just started tapping into now through following a lot of uh, game developers on Twitter, a lot of game journalists and a lot of, you know, content creators and, and fans uh, like you who are, you know, all contributing to there's just so much fun 
fun content out there right now, you know, as a gamer. So I want to keep, you know, reading articles. I want to keep listening to podcasts and, you know, hopefully, you know, trying my hand at, at a few more um, kind of game stories that I write myself, you know, maybe, uh, maybe for, uh, for AZP Zelda blog that we might talk about in a, in yes. a few weeks. Yes. Yes. Please. Like, yeah, please. I would love to <laughs> know more ideas. It's, and it's, um, I think I've mentioned this, I don't know, to you or other people, but it can be a little constraining, like coming up with ideas when mm-hmm. it's, you're focusing on one game series, but miraculously people keep coming up with topics for these articles. Yeah. I wonder if it's one of those things where it's like you're constrained. So that almost gives you more to play with because it's like, well, I can only talk about this one game series, but I can talk about anything I want within that. So, you know, maybe that gives you freedom to really come up with fun, um, fun articles. Like I'm trying to remember the most recent one that, um, that y'all posted. Uh, oh, Mallory's about yes, the pets. <laughs> yes, Mallory's one about the pets. And that was so much fun. And that's such a great, like, it's such a great angle for, uh, for a post and for a story. Cause yeah, just everyone, you know, has that thought. Everyone plays a game and thinks about like, you know, what animal would make like a cool pet or how would I interact with, you know, a cuckoo in real life. And it's just it's very fun. Don't hit them. That's, that's how yeah. I would for sure yeah. interact yeah, with them yeah. is not hit them with I a think, sword. I think that's the takeaway. <laughs> <laughs> well, Alex, where can people um, support you? How should they support you? Yeah, absolutely. Um, you can, uh, you can follow me on, uh, on Twitter. Um, uh, Alex uh, underscore E underscore Orlando uh, is my username there. And um, you can also uh, just Google me and um, follow uh, either my, my personal website or um, my uh, author byline at Discover um, for any uh, new stories I'm working on. Is there anything we did not cover? Because I feel like we could talk for probably like 10 more hours <laughs> about all the things. Like, come Absolutely. on over. Come on <laughs> over. We'll have some eggnog. We'll play Zelda. We'll play mm-hmm. <laughs> different games. <laughs> Is there anything we forgot no, to talk about? No, I think, I think I, this was great. I think I think we we nailed it. Um, thank you so much for like giving me some time to just chat and talk about uh, journalism and and games and all the fun stuff I'm interested in. This was a blast. I love it. I'm so happy that you were able to make time, and I'm so happy that you got married and you're in. Okay, when you said like, oh, I love the reminder of the ring on my finger. <laughs> I'm sure. Say that to Rachel. She'll probably melt. (laughs) I will save that for later, for sure. (laughs) Well, everyone, um, thank you so much for listening. And please do follow Alex where um, he said he can be found. And you can find other 1v1 interviews at bossrush.net. And you can follow me, Celeste, on Twitter at FairyCrypt. F-A-E-R-I-E-C-R-Y-P-T. So until next time, we'll talk to you all later. Thanks, everyone. Bye, guys.